Um, we are in Luke 18 this morning. We're going to continue on there with another one of, of Jesus' personal encounters with people. The ministry of Jesus is wonderful. It's, it's multifaceted. Jesus preached to the masses. That's part of his ministry. But he also spent the most of his time with just 12 people, which seems counterintuitive. If you wanted to reach the world, why would you spend so much time with just a few people? But the other great part of Jesus' ministry is his personal ministry to people one at a time. He was willing, the king of the universe, the son of God, to spend time one-on-one with people. And that's what he does in this passage today. A man comes to him, and he, unlike anyone else, knows the heart of this person. He knows exactly where he is, and he knows what he needs to hear, and he takes the time to speak with this person and tell this person what he needs to hear. The question is whether we will listen to what God has to say to us. And sadly, in our story this morning, this man will not listen. He goes away with a heart that is hardened. But we see again two of the major themes of the the Gospel of Luke, two themes that come up over and over again. If you have been with us for many months, it may even be shocking to you how many times these themes come up in the Gospel of Luke. And here we have them before us again. What are these themes? One is the cost of discipleship. That coming to follow after Christ has a cost that comes with it. And if we are willing to give up nothing and change nothing, we cannot come in the name of Christ. When we come and follow after Christ, it will change the direction of our life. It will cost us the things of this world. It will cost us our friendships in one way. But what we will find out is that as we lose something that we think is so dear, we will gain something that is so much greater, something that is eternal and can never be lost. But second is that Jesus must have the first place in our affections. Jesus not recommends it, not wants it, but Jesus will have the first place in our affections. He will take second place to nothing else. There must be no other God before Christ Jesus in our life. We cannot love both God and this world. We cannot love the money and the possessions and the places of this world and also love Jesus. The love for Christ must displace all other things. And this is what the hard heart of this rich young ruler today cannot abide by. Following Jesus means that we will die to old ways, that we will die to a previous way of living, that we will go in a different direction, that we will be given and accept an eternal perspective on the world, and that we will seek an eternal reward. And so this morning in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, uh, we're going to read this story. This is a story that is in all three of the synoptic gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And any time that something is recorded in every one of the gospels, it means it had a profound impact on those that observed what happened that day. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's put into Scripture that we might not miss this important story. So please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. 
And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we have a, a person is said here to be a ruler in verse 18. What exactly he is a ruler of, we're not sure. He could be a ruler of the local synagogue that is spoken of often, the synagogue being the local Jewish gathering. He could be a ruler in the Sanhedrin, which is a political ruler of the Jewish people. Whatever it is, he had a place of authority. And he also had great wealth. as a position of authority and a place of, it says here, extreme wealth. And what it meant in that day is what it meant in this day, that he was a person that was revered in society because of his standing and what he had. But it also tells us in Matthew 19, 20, in that version of this story, that he was also young. And so perhaps his wealth was an inherited wealth. And if that is the case, then he had always lived a life of wealth and a life of privilege. But I want to note something here, something that is very important to note about the ministry of Jesus, is that Jesus never panders to or flatters rich people. That is the way of the world. And I know you're guilty of it because I'm guilty of it too, treating people that are wealthy and an authority in a different way than you treat other people. Why is that? It's because maybe they'll do something for me, or maybe they'll give you something, or I don't want to offend this person because maybe I'll need this person one day, and this person will help me. But Jesus is not like this with wealthy people. Jesus tells wealthy people the truth, and he goes straight to the heart with them, just like he does every other person. And this man, this wealthy young man in authority, comes to Jesus and calls him good teacher, good teacher, and he asks him a question. But it's important to understand later in verse 19 that this, this good teacher greeting is not the way that his disciples greet him. It's not the way that those who believed him and really followed in him greeted him. So we'll come back to this in just a moment because Jesus corrects him in the way that he greets him. But this young man asks a question, and this question is a good question. It's a question that all of us ought to ask, and the question is, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to, to live forever, to have a place in the kingdom of God? This is not a question that's asked often today. Often today, we are so busy and so consumed by the things of this world that we really don't care what happens to us after we die. We don't even think about it. Today, in the issues of the day, and what we have today is what really matters to us more than anything else. But I would have you hear what Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him 
will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ came that you might have eternal life. Jesus Christ did not come that you might have a more rich material life in the here and now. But most people are not considering these things. They don't really care what happens to them after death. And so I would ask you, when was the last time you asked the question of what must I do to gain eternal life? If you are here today and you don't know much about Christ or you have never placed your faith and trust in him, I would ask you, when was the last time that you considered the state of your soul? It matters, it matters most. But Jesus' answer today is not a typical answer. It is not what we would expect. And in fact, I would say, it's not what I would tell you if you ask me this same question after the service today. But what is happening here is that it's right for this man. This is the personal ministry of Jesus. Jesus Christ knew the hearts of people in a way that none of us can ever know. And Jesus knew that this was the response that this man needed in order to expose his sinfulness and bring to light what he needed to hear in the moment. And Jesus is good to minister to each one of us personally right where we are. And so in verse 19, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus rebukes or corrects this man. He says in verse 19, why do you call me good or at a lower level of greeting? No one is good except God alone. And it's my understanding of this is that he is elevating this man's understanding of who he is. That I am more than you think I am. I am divine. I am God. Only God alone is good in the final sense. And I am the one who is speaking to you. I am God. You know the commands, he says, do not commit uh, adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And so what he does here is he works to expose this man's sin. The beginning of salvation is always a deep sense of our own sin and that we need forgiveness before God. And so he points him to the commandments, and this is the Ten Commandments. But what part of the Ten Commandments? There's, there's really two sections to the Ten Commandments coming out of Exodus chapter 20. Often it's referred to as, as two tables of these Ten Commands. The first four being the, the first table of the commandments, which has to do with our relationship to God. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make any idols. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy. This is all about how we relate to God. The second table of the Ten Commandments, or the six through ten, is how we relate to other people. And so here, Jesus is speaking directly to that. How do we relate to other people? And we start to see where Jesus is going with this. Because in verse 21, this young man says, oh, well, I, I've kept all these for my youth. Like, I, I, I got this. I, I'm, I'm good here. This is something from the outside that people might look upon him and say, yes, he has done these things. He is very self-confident. He is self-righteous. He clearly was very religious. And it would be my guess that he even hoped that Jesus would ask him this question and that he'd be able to say, ah, yes, I have done this and, and hope that Jesus might congratulate him or somehow praise him. But he was not prepared for what Jesus was going to do. But this is not uncommon. 
And in preparing for this, it just it reminded me of the story of Naaman in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there is this, this general. He's a Syrian general, and he is wealthy, and he is very religious, and he's very respected and very similar to this character in many ways. And he comes down with leprosy, this great incurable disease, and he has nowhere to turn. But he hears that there is a prophet in Israel, and he goes eventually to Elisha, And he asks Elisha, and he comes sort of like this young man with great wealth and great gifts and an entourage and the whole bit. And he says to Elijah, what what should I do to be healed? And we know from later in the story that he wants a work that he can go and do so that he can show how great he is and how much of his effort is involved with him becoming saved. And then he can give of his wealth to this prophet and much can be made of him as Naaman and he can be healed. Well, what happens? Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant and says, go dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be healed and I don't want any of your money. Thank you. Have a nice day. And he's offended and upset and he leaves and if you go back read the story but what happens is eventually he does go dip seven times in the Jordan River and he is healed and it's a work of the Lord and everybody involved with the story knows that it has nothing to do with Naaman and everything to do with the Lord and it humbles Naaman and it changes Naaman and that is what Jesus is working towards with this man right here that he would realize that his salvation is all of grace and has nothing to do with him, nothing to do with his authority, nothing to do with his wealth, and everything to do with the grace of God. And so he doesn't realize it. He's not following. He's not catching on. And so Jesus is very clear in verse 22. One thing you still lack. You think you've got it all together. You think you've got it all wrapped up pretty tight. But I'm telling you, you lack one thing. And what do you lack? You lack the essential thing. You lack the one thing that really matters, and that is that you have missed the first commandment. Yes, you've got all the other commandments wrapped up, but the one commandment under which they all rest you have missed, which is the first one, that you shall have no other gods before me. Three times this statement is rehashed in the Gospels. It sounds like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What Jesus is driving at with this young man is that Jesus must be his master passion. He must love Jesus Christ above all things and before all things. The strongest affection in the heart of this young man must be Jesus, the Son of God, who is above all. And this passion, this affection, this love must order all the other things in his life. And we understand what that means. Every one of you here has some great thing that you love and that you are passionate about. And the other things of your life are ordered under that one great passion. Whether it's your work, or whether it's your family, or whether it's education, or whether it's the accumulation of wealth, whether it's some adventure, I don't know what it is. And for some people, it can be the strangest thing. But there is something that you love in your life more than anything else. And you structure the other decisions of your life around that one passion. And for this man, it was not Jesus Christ. And all of us start with it being something other than Jesus Christ. But Jesus will not take the second place. 
He will be the first place in your heart. He requires your full obedience with nothing in reserve. And I would note this morning that Jesus always commands to our weakness. He doesn't speak to this man something that he's already strong in. He goes straight for the one thing that he is weak in, that his heart is divided on, and he speaks to him on that issue. This man found his identity in his possessions. He found his identity in his wealth. He loved his wealth. He loved how people treated him with a special honor because of the way he was and the standing that he had. He loved the ease, perhaps, of his wealth. It was his strongest passion, and it ordered his life. And so what did Jesus say? He said, take it and sell it all. Give it all to the poor and come follow me. Get rid of this thing that is rooted so deeply in your heart. And only Jesus could have known about this man that his love for material wealth ran so deep that the only way to break its hold over his heart was to get rid of all of it. And there are some of you here that are like that. Perhaps it is some form of addiction that rules your life. And the only way to be free of it is to get rid of all of it, for it to be gone from your life, that the the Lord Jesus might rule in your heart. I don't know where you are this morning, but this is where this man was, and Jesus spoke to him what he needed to hear. Sell it all, give it to the poor, follow me. The rule is this, that there will always be a cost to discipleship. When Jesus calls us to follow him, it will never be without price. What Jesus will require of you is what you love the most, and it must be replaced by loving Jesus first. He must have the first place in our hearts. So the sell-all rule is what Jesus requires of this person, not of all of us. And how do we know this? The rule is that there will always be a cost What the cost is depends on who you are and where you are and what you love. We know from just the very next chapter, Luke chapter 19, verse 8, we see another wealthy man come to salvation. We see Zacchaeus, the man that climbs up in the tree to see Jesus. He's a tax collector and a wealthy man. And when he comes to salvation, he automatically, by having a new love in his heart, a change of affection in his heart, says what? In 19.8, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. And he had gone in to be a guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we have a different outcome here. But what we have is the same change of affection. What did take the first place in this heart of this man no longer takes the first place. He has come to love Jesus, and he understands that his affections must be reordered. And so he says, I am going to give away half of everything and refund the people that I have defrauded, and it's a new day in my life. And that's right for him. It's enough for him because his heart has changed. The love of Jesus must rule over the wealth of our life. And so in verse 23, he keeps going. But when he heard these things, this is the rich young man, he became very sad because he was extremely wealthy. So what happens with Zacchaeus does not happen with this young man. 
because he counts the cost and he sees what Jesus is asking and he says, I'm not going to do that. Jesus is, is interesting to me. I think that what he's saying may be true, but I definitely do not love him enough to do that. I will not follow him that far. I will not do what he asks. And so in a very real and pointed way, a way that was observed by all the disciples in a way that is recorded for us in three of the Gospels. This man hung his head and said, I will not do this. And he walks away in sadness. He chooses the seen over the unseen. He chooses the temporal over the eternal. He chooses the praise of men over the praise of God. He chooses the ease of this life over eternal life. And so, of course, the question is, how about you? How do we react to these things when we read what we see here? Do you love Jesus Christ above all things? Does your love for Jesus order the rest of your life? Or does something else order your life? Are you willing to obey Jesus to any end? This is what we see over and over and over in the Bible, from characters in the Old Testament to characters in the New Testament. From Moses to Mary to Paul, all these people are willing to say, yes, Lord, to anything that he asks of them. No matter how great the sacrifice, how great the redirection of life, they say, yes, Lord, and they go in the direction that he calls. And they find in it life. And they find there a joy that passes all understanding. And they find ultimately eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. If someone were to ask, not you, but your spouse or your children or your coworkers, what does this person love the most? What's the, what's the first place in their life? What would your spouse say or what would your children say that you love the most? Would they quickly and immediately say, oh, my father, my mother, they, they love Jesus before anything and above all things. What would they say? What can you point to? that is clearly a sacrifice that you have made in following Jesus, that would indicate that your life has been redirected in some way to follow after Christ. What have you sacrificed to care for the poor? Because it's a constant, constant thing in the life of Christ that the abundance and the extra that we have, we ought to always be mindful of those that are poor. And so it is a warning. And Jesus goes on to make this warning unmistakable and super clear. If we miss this warning, we have missed something tremendous. We have missed it because we've hardened our heart against it, not because it's unclear. And so what does he say in verse 24? As this man lowers his head and walks away in sadness, he says this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's an issue of proportion, because when we have more of the things of this world, we tend to love the things of this world more. Our hearts are more drawn to it. When we have less of the things of this world, there's less to love, and our heart is more open to love the things of God. And so there's a danger in having more of the things of this world. It is rare that there is a person that can hold the things of this world without their heart being possessed by it. Let me say that again. Because the rule is not that we all sell all. The issue is about our heart. And rare is the person that can hold the wealth of this world and have it not possess their heart. 
that they are willing to have the things of this world taken away by God at any time and have them still love the Lord. This is the unusual story of the man named Job. It's one of the books of the Bible. If you haven't read it in a long time, go read the first couple of chapters. He had absolutely everything that the world could offer. And the Lord said, I'm going to take it away from him, and you're going to see he will still love me even when all of it is taken away because his heart is truly mine. And he does. He says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could you say that? Verse 25 is... Is a, is a figure of speech or a hyperbole of language that Jesus uses often in the Bible. He uses language that is extreme and is exaggerated in order to make a clear point. Uh, you've heard probably many times, as I have, uh, that there's some gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate, but in, in my research, uh, over and over again, I found people saying there was no such gate like this. And I'm not sure where this thing came from. It's, a, it's an exaggeration of speech that makes a clear point. A camel was the biggest animal in Israel, and a needle was the smallest hole in everyday life. And he said it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that should be shocking. That should, wake, that should cause every one of us to think, what in the world is he talking about? I, I need to listen to this. Hear this warning. If you love this life and what money can buy more than Jesus you will never enter the kingdom of God. That should, that should, for America, this should be a message that we put before us all the time as the most materially rich nation in the world. That if you love this life and what money can buy more than you love God, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It should be shocking for us. But this passage changes from a warning to a blessing. Why is that? Because there were those standing right there that had heard the call of Jesus and had been willing to give up everything. And as we're going to see, they want to know what God has to say to them. This person walked away, but others did not. And so they ask, who can be saved then? And this is a passage that, that is very similar to our day and age. Why do they ask this? They ask this because the thinking of the day is much like our thinking of our day. That if a person is materially rich, then they must be blessed by God. And if they are blessed by God, then certainly they are going to heaven. And do we not see the same thing often in our day and age? That if you are materially rich, then God must have his favor upon you. You must be uh, beloved of God, and surely you will go to heaven. But that is the exact opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. You're not listening. He says it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because they will be greatly tempted by the things of this world to love this world rather than to love the things of God. That the poor are in fact more likely to love Jesus and follow Jesus and long for eternal life because they have little to love in this world. But Jesus is not speaking, I, I want to be clear here because I think it's important to note this here, that Jesus is not speaking about the desperately poor, those that, that do not have the needs that they need every day in order to live. Because the scriptures are clear that God promises and does meet the needs of those that are poor and love his name. He meets those needs through work. He meets those needs through family. He meets those needs through the church. And then what happens eventually is that God supplies a little bit more. He supplies extra. And what do we do with that extra? We look to the needs of others and we do things to help them and give to them. 
But part of what Jesus is saying here is that if your heart is ruled by the love of money and not by the love of Christ, you'll never reach that point. Because no matter how much extra you have, you'll always find a way to spend it on yourself. And you'll be like, ah, I just don't really have much to give to anybody else. Why? Because I need it. Well, what, the, what does that mean? What does that need equal? But when we love Christ and our life is ordered by the affection that we have for Christ, we will somehow find that we always have a little extra to give to those that are in need because we care about them, because we love them for Jesus' sake. And it is an unselfishness that is wrought in our heart by Jesus. The early church was marked by this. They were marked by generosity toward each other because of their love for God. They loved each other and they were willing to give and to help each other. They were willing to help the poor that were in need. Well, the conclusion to this is where we're always brought in verse 27. That what is impossible with man is possible with God. All things are possible with God. That what is impossible by man, which is saving ourselves through the things of this world, is possible with God. That through Jesus Christ, in his gospel, in the good news of what he brings, people might come to salvation in God. I would read this, this great summary of the gospel by Tim Keller to you. The gospel is not that we amass a good record and we give our good record of things to God. And then he saves us. No, no. Instead, the gospel is that Jesus Christ has amassed a perfect record. And when we believe in him, he gives it to us. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place. So that when we believe, our sins are pardoned and we are counted righteous in his sight. Then we are completely accepted and loved by the only one in the universe whose opinion really counts. And that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived the life that we should live. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and we are accepted by God the Father, loved by him, and given life by him. And so in verse 28, Peter reminds Jesus of this. See, we have left our homes to follow you. We have believed we have sacrificed, we have counted the cost, we have obeyed the call of the Father to follow after you. What of us? What are we to think of these things? And Jesus proclaims this great blessing on them in the last verses here. He said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one, there's no exception to this rule. It's not only these people, but those in ages to come and those who live now. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, many, many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The rich man sees only what he is losing, but the one who believes in Jesus Christ sees what he gains and the eternal reward that comes to us in Christ. I was reminded by a friend this past week of a beautiful passage that I'm going to read to you in 2 Peter that talks to us. Peter, the very person 
responding to Jesus in this passage, writes later a letter to the churches reminding them of all the great things, the promises and the gifts that they are given in Christ that they should not lose sight of. And I want us not to lose sight of it this morning. That when we look at what we are giving up, let us look more so to what we gain in Christ. And it is not wealth of this world. 2 Peter 1, 3-5 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So what do we have going on here? It says that in Christ, we have been given all that we need for life and godliness. We did not have what we needed before Christ, but in Christ, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And in him, we have been granted precious and great promises, it says, promises related to the mercy and grace of God, promises as to the indwelling nearness of the Holy Spirit, promises related to eternal life. And then this crazy, fascinating passage that I encourage you to spend time dwelling on. It says that through these things that we may become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? It means that in Christ, we who used to be in darkness and far away separated from God are now brought so near to God and by the ministry of his spirit, we are able to actually partake in the nature of God, that the communicable attributes of God begin to come, become ours. We begin to be made in some way in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the old things pass away and new things come. And as our life carries on, we become more like Christ in his divine nature, until one day we die and pass into his presence and are gloriously made like him. This is an escaping, it says, of the corrupt and dying world. But the rich man in this story did not want this. He was not interested in this. He wanted his camels and his rugs. And we look at that today and we're like, what? That's just, why? But if the, if the Lord Jesus tarries for many more years, people will look back at us and say, man, look at all their gadgets like this. Why were they so enamored by these enormous TVs? Like what was it with these phones that these people loved so much? It's so odd. But those are the things of our time that we love and that we want. That's what he wanted. But Peter and the disciples said, we will follow you, Jesus, anywhere we love your name above all things. You are the Christ, the Son of God, and we will come after you. And so let me close with two brief things. One, I would say very clearly that this message from Jesus today is the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel in our time. There are many false teachers in our day and age that will tell you that if God loves you, he will make you materially rich. And I would ask you to compare that teaching with this clear teaching from Jesus in the Bible. Why would God give you more and more of that which would tempt you and draw you away from the Lord? Why would he do that? Explain that to me. I don't think you can because it doesn't make any sense. Instead, it says very clearly that he will supply our needs 
and that he will then abundantly speak to our soul and change us seeking an eternal reward. And secondly, does this mean that God wants me to live a boring, joyless life with no position? Because I think that's what some people see. I think that's what ambitious people see when they see this passion. That if I follow after Christ, it will certainly take all the joy and ambition and passion out of my life. But this is not the case. The way of Christ is the opposite. One of the primary fruits of God's spirit is joy. I would argue that you will never find joy in this life until you come to Christ Jesus and lay down your life. And in Christ and in the ordering of your life under him, you will find the greatest joy you will ever find. You will find transcendent living, living that transcends the the humdrum and ordinary things of the day. You will find the deepest relationships that you will ever experience in Christ. And you will find the most rewarding labor. Now, when it comes to labor and job, again, I encourage you to look at the people that are in the scriptures that reach the highest echelons of things. When you look at Joseph, Daniel, David, people that held great positions, how did they reach those positions? Did they reach those positions by seeking after those positions alone? No. How did they reach those positions? They sought God. They wanted to know who God was passionately and deeply And God had a plan for them. And he raised them up to the position that they were in, that they might be used in all kinds of ways. And there's nothing different about that today. But if you look at the life of Joseph and Daniel and David and many other Bible characters, it's unequivocal that God had the first place in their heart. Is the Christian life for you a hobby or is it a passion? Do you know about Jesus or do you love him personally? And I'll say one thing about this on Father's Day, that I believe that fathers, the greatest gift that you can give to your children is to love Jesus first. Because when you love Jesus first, you will love your wife the way you ought to love her. You will love your children the way you ought to love them. And you will teach them the greatest thing that they need to know, which is how it is that they might know Christ. And so today I pray that you will not hang your head in sadness and leave this place with a hardness of heart, but that you will not harden your heart against the Lord, but that you will believe today and you will follow after Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your son. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for this sure and clear word to us today. It is one that every one of us struggle with. It's a word that every person that has ever lived has struggled with. Because we all struggle with the things that we can see, the material world that we long after. And I pray, God, that you will change our hearts and that we would love Christ above all things. And I pray, God, that no one would leave this place today with a hardened heart. No one would leave this this place today choosing the things of the world over the things of Christ that we would hear the Lord Jesus and that we would submit to him, that we would pay that price and in paying it gain a thousand times more in eternal life and the opportunity to partake in the divine nature of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lead us and guide us this day. In Christ's name I pray, amen.